welcome to solakapur's podcast and today's topic was born out of an instagram uh, interaction actually so aiden has been a guest on this podcast we did one uh, during the last us election aiden welcome to the podcast thank you for doing this man absolutely so this topic was born because we had i i had posted an uh, a story on instagram saying that the public transport of america kind of sucks you know to be blunt and to which aiden responded with very interesting facts and figures of how it sucked and how it could have been and how it was and where it has come to so i thought that would make a really good topic to talk about and and along with that we'll talk about the car culture of america and so on so aiden uh, thank you again for uh, doing this so uh, just continuing our conversation on the insta from where we left off right so uh we have to get, we have to take it from the bottom uh, uh for people who are uninitiated right i mean obviously there are a lot of indians living in america but there are a lot of uninitiated people who think of america as this wonderful uh, utopian dreamland where where everything is so easy and comfortable but it is not exactly easy and comfortable when it comes to public transport right so what is notorious about it among the cities that has public transport and among the really famous cities that don't even have an inch of a public transport so what is notoriously bad about them absolutely so first off i just say that in general i think urban history in america is really a kind of discipline of understanding how the country came to develop the way it did um why the country looks the way it does now it's often usually neglected in the mainstream and i think that that's a big mistake because i think a lot of the way the united states developed its cities especially in the last 100 years is intimately related to how the united states developed in social matters and really just in everything really just i mean the most obvious example is just the way racial prejudice is obviously created massive massive you know informal segregation in cities well past segregation being formally banned by the federal mm. government and how that persists to this day i'd say also something with america that's very interesting and i think it's illuminating in some ways is if you look at the top 10 largest cities in america mm. and i think that's interesting for a variety of reasons because in the average country if you look at the 10 largest cities it correlates pretty well with what the most well-known cities are in india it is you know uh, yeah. obviously there's been big shifts in the last 100 years like bengaluru is much larger than it was a century ago kolkata is comparatively smaller but obviously delhi mumbai uh, you know chennai they generally in terms of demographics uh, there are very large populations do correlate with outside perception but in america one of the weirder parts of this country is that cities are If you ever look at a map of an American city, there's such a bizarre uh, discrepancy in what they look like. So in Los Angeles, for example, you have large swathes of LA and LA County that aren't just aren't part of the city. Mm. Um they're considered part of the community, but they're not formally within the boundaries. And the explanation for this is every state governs its own laws with regards to this and for a variety of reasons some cities have kind of pushed to incorporate outside communities mm. and some haven't but within the context of this conversation i think it's important because a lot of the 10 largest cities in america places like phoenix arizona um really only became huge in the last 100 years and the significance of that with regard to car culture is that these cities developed while cars were becoming the dominant mode of transportation LA became a major city at the turn of the 20th century because of the local oil boom and that turned right. into car manufacturers lobbying against public transportation and yeah so in that sense a lot of america in the last 100 years is so so much of it does relate to really exclusionary urban planning that is really preferences cars above all other forms of transportation so you have a arrangement where you're in a city um this a place with over a million people mm. it doesn't really feel like a city in a conventional sense most of these places phoenix arizona it is one story buildings with five lanes of cars mm. in between them with endless concrete to walk on without even seeing a tree 
and so much of it is it really is just indicative of a lot i mean i'll you know let you ask more specific questions but i think that this is why i'd like to interrogate it i'm you know at the risk of going off on a tangent and i should have been a little bit more direct when making this perhaps but mm -hmm. but yeah a lot of it is just so kind of untouched upon when i Mm. think it's so fundamental to understanding the last 100 years is urban planning so right and and you give such a detailed answer but i still want to start with the basics right so uh, why do we get a sense that you need a car in America to survive in general, right? So do you feel that as a young person uh, who is starting out, probably may or may not be able to afford a car, are our cars deliberately made so affordable that everyone has to like flock to them? So why, why, why is it that we need cars so badly even to go to a grocery store what what is the structure of an american city right because mm-hmm. i have been told that there is a downtown in the center and there are suburbs all around and there'll be a walmart for every suburb or like so how, why how is this entire structure of an american city planned for the cars by the cars with the cars if i'm not wrong I'm, no that's completely correct and people will you know push back and kind of demand that more nuance is given but no it's true if you don't have a car it's miserable if you go um Forgive me for using miles because, you know, America, we have uh, funny units of measurement. Uh, But just as an example, I'm in California. And even though California was built to accommodate car culture, we still do have better public transportation than most places outside of New York, just because we're a democratic state and Mm. blue states give a little bit more funding than places like Texas, where bus services get next to nothing. And what's really funny is when I use a maps app um, and, you know, I have to drive, unfortunately, and I was looking uh, not even that far of a distance, and I was using my Google Maps app. I looked down and I saw this distance within my same county. It said that to get from point A to where I needed to be, it said two hours and 20 minutes. And I was like, what do you mean two hours and 20 minutes? And I looked and I saw, oh, no, that's the tab for public transportation, yes. i.e. buses or Metrolink. When you go to cars, it says 20 minutes. Um, and like I said, California is not even remotely close to being the worst offender in this regard it's better Mm. at the very least um and yeah and to even before getting into kind of the broader topic one of the issues is it's so deeply difficult to build public transportation systems when you've already created a layout for a city designed for cars like i.e when you build a massive human settlement and every block is just single family two-story homes as opposed to apartment buildings you can fund buses as much as you want it's just really going to be limited when you've already built that as opposed to building something like new york Mm. um and i'd say just to start off uh in the sense of understanding kind of where american attitudes towards cars came about i think it's just really important to understand america and go back to its settler colonial roots as a country where people think of america as like a tabula rasa like endless land uh even before america expanded out west you know people thought that there was just like endless frontier that's where you get the classic of i don't know if it has the same connotation in india as the classic saying of you know how americans just want to have a nice house with a white picket fence yeah. but that's always such a deeply ingrained attitude towards and you know what americans see as the ideal living situation american when dream you have a, exactly and when you have um no real natural borders in going into the development of america meaning you know 19th century where america was only half the size as it was now we weren't west past of the mississippi river california and washington all these it's um they generally didn't have any european settlements at that time they were Mm. native lands and at the time you know people saw it sort of as an endless frontier and you know in that sense it kind of just kind of cars kind of just got ingrained slowly and surely and it's simplistic to say but there is really an ingrained sentiment that cars are the expression of freedom and that public transportation is degenerate and that is an attitude that definitely exists elsewhere. It's not like I'm sure in, you know, I've lived in London before and people who are very wealthy in the United Kingdom to some extent or another, I mean, 
often they do look down on people who use the bus as opposed to drive their Mercedes to Knightsbridge every day. But London and the United Kingdom are naturally limited in how large they can be. The UK is, you know, Britain is an island and London is kind of, has built up naturally. I mean, obviously yeah. not naturally. It's a human settlement, but you know what I mean? It's a yeah, settlement yeah. that's kind of existed for since Roman times and around like 64 AD. And slowly yeah. but surely it had to accommodate a slow growth. And that meant people living pretty close to each other. But then you have places like Los Angeles, which was not really a city in any sense until like 1880. You have unlimited land. And of mm. course, it's a colonial mentality. Indigenous peoples have been living there for thousands of years. But I'm just speaking from the vantage point of, you know, American right. urban planners. They see it as like, this is endless land. Um, it's the most beautiful. Uh, I mean, California is the most beautiful geography on earth. And they thought, you know, we could build so many, you know, white picket fence houses. We could um, favor the local oil industry interests by funding it. And and that's kind of different on the West Coast compared to the East Coast because, you know, New York is, Manhattan is kind of like London or Europe. Yep. Manhattan is naturally limited. That's why it's dense. And yeah. even in the other, and not that like, unfortunately, most East Coast cities, they're still not, um, the public transportation is lackluster there. But the way their inner city core kind of works, it is still more dense to the point that um, a lot of like just thinking of like Charleston, South Carolina, which is in the south, um, a lot of its urban planning is kind of more reminiscent of like a European style city, this type of city that can host like a really good public transport network. Mm. But in places like Phoenix, Arizona, I mean, it's it's not even remotely resembling what a city means in any conventional sense. It's a very weird and, you know, um, settler colonial mentality of what a human settlement should be i.e just kind of like endless um atomized little neighborhoods of houses that you can't really leave unless you own a scrap of metal to do so when when will we as human beings in general will let go of the idea of a house on a plot right it is not sustainable right how much land are you going to occupy how many forests are you going to destroy i think expanding horizontal expanding horizontally is not sustainable way of you know expanding i think we should be looking to expand vertically right more and more apartment cities should be the uh, you know go to way of living in the future absolutely. absolutely and i think that um i don't know if not even just india but even in western europe or just anywhere outside of the us because it's not really a case in england or whatever either in America, we have a really specific conception of what we call college towns, because in America, we build universities in a lot of the times in towns that literally have 600 people in a rural right. area. That's not a case in Britain. I mean, they have their universities are in cities or yeah. major towns hmm. um, in America. We, you know, we think of a college town, so to speak, as basically and kind of looping this in back there but yeah just speaking on how i think that americans could be sold on the idea of dense settlements and apartment living is that people really idealize the college experience in america i don't know mm -hmm. if you know what american pie is or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah there's i would recommend that to any of you who are kind of interested in knowing what i'm talking about yeah um, there's a really idealized version of college life in america that definitely doesn't apply to most people who go to college but it's mm. still kind of seen as like the dream when you're in your early 20s to be yeah. in you know a small town you live near your campus and you get to walk to the bar with your friends just three blocks away um, and so I made a good point on Twitter that Americans really love to idealize this dream version of a college life mm. that has a little bit of merit to being the experience of some people, but not for anyone, mind you. But the main point is Americans like that dream because at their core, Americans, like other people, would like to live near places where they can go and mm. shop and see their friends and drink. It's just that, you know, then they get told that, oh, no, it's you know, communists to live in how in yeah, apartment yeah. housing, you need to, and it's like, no, people, even Americans, individualistic types, it's like, no, it's still really nice to be able to go and like, walk and see your friends. And that's why mm. New York is the best, is like, unequivocally, in my opinion, the best place in America, despite like, it's faults, like every other place is that right. you can pretty much do that in Manhattan. And even in, you know, the surrounding boroughs, to some extent. But yeah, I definitely think that the main thing and you know to get people to sign on to this dream of a future like this 
is you just need to break the spell that it's freedom to sit in traffic for 40 minutes to do menial tasks that you could easily reduce to a two block, like five minute walk if you just built cities better. And when I try to argue this with people, um, a lot of it is like, if you're in America, you just don't really get it. And I'm someone like, I've always been obsessed with politics and, but I'm from California. And even though like I supported, you know, increased funding for public transportation, when I've heard people advocate for it, Mm. I never truly understood what it would be like to live in a place where you didn't need to have a car until I lived in London. And then Mm. all of a sudden it clicked. Um, And yeah, I think you just need to kind of break the spell of this because it's horrible to have to drive this long for anything. I'm in a suburb of Los Angeles currently, and I'm actually lucky there is a grocery store like where you can shop like in walking distance. It's just that it's literally only one. And then past that, it's just endless rows of houses. And you can't even go to like, you know, anything besides that as a community center, uh, pretty much. Yeah, it's just kind of breaking the spell. And I think, honestly, like, there's been kind of a push. It's called, do you know what the term NIMBY means? Mm -hmm. Not in my backyard. It's a really, um, Uh. it's an American term. Yeah, NIMBYism, um, you'll probably see it if you, like, it's something that, like, you notice, like, when you hear people say it for the first time. NIMBY, not in my backyard. It's usually people who are in, like, community organizations in cities where they're, like, oh yeah, I support a homeless shelter, but just not in my backyard in the neighborhood over there. And there's been a movement that has uh, its flaws, which I won't get into because it's kind of nuanced, but there's something called yes in my backyard. And it's Mm. mainly a people who are saying, yes, like, please, for love of God, like build dense, affordable apartments in my neighborhood. Like, please do not let it. Um, So I think just kind of having that as a slogan, um, something that will mainly attract like professional middle class types are kind of a good coalition for this. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it's, you know, there's a lot of limitations and it's just kind of hard to show most people. It's just hard for the average American, including people I know who are very politically inclined and left wing, and I'm sure they would support like, you know, increased funding for public transport it's just they can't really imagine it because to them it's like well yeah it's a bus but i mean that's cool to have a bus but like you know that just means you'll have to be in the bus for 40 minutes instead of the car to get somewhere and i'm like no no it means you have the bus and then you build the city so you don't need to um go exactly and then for me the other reason um since there's just such a fascination with teslas in particular and you know other forms of green technology obviously you know um, green cars are better for the environment than oil, you know, uh, like oil powered cars, and it's better than the petroleum industry. The issue is it's still not sustainable because that just means, like, just in the case of Mexico City, which I think is a city, um, you know, very similar to Los Angeles in terms of planning, uh, mm. very beautiful and absolutely lovely place. And I, I loved it when I visited, but it also does have the same um, sprawl pattern as LA and most American cities. Right. The issue is when you have, you know, horizontal as opposed to vertical building, like in your terminology that I think is pretty helpful, it's still bad for the environment, even if you have like electric cars, because that means like places that would otherwise, you know, soak in water during floods or whatever. Mm. It means you have to build concrete on top of it. And in Mexico City's case, there's so much concrete because of its horizontal layout that even though it was built on top of a lake that the Spanish, you know, I don't know if you know the story of Mexico City, but it's also kind of an interesting one for that regard. Right. Mexico City is a place built on top of a lake and, Mm. you know, in its waterbed, there's still a lot of water, but the city has to get all of its water pretty much from outside sources, like from an aqueduct. Because the rain that goes in and floods the city, it's one of the most flood prone cities in the world. And most people don't know that. It just gets on the concrete. So it's like, no, you, you can't have horrors. We can't have green cars. You need apartments and you yeah. need trains. Right. Um, and it's like, yeah. And it's, it just really is startling. And like, yeah, like I said, I don't, I've never been to India and I don't know what it's like living in urban India or in a rural area. I mean, I've seen, you know, in movies I've seen where it shows like pretty extreme traffic congestion in Mumbai. 100%. Uh, but I, yeah, but I don't know the degree to which things are, but also Mumbai and most Indian cities have very large populations. And I don't mm. know the degree to which 
their layout is like it in America, because in most American cities, you will literally, being back in California after living in New York, it's really startling when you'll literally walk through parking lots mm. that could easily house a thousand people if it was not even a skyscraper built. Right. It. If you just build it like normal, like Midtown, uh, you know, Lower Manhattan yeah. uh, housing that was built like a hundred years ago over there, it could literally house over like a thousand people easily. Right. And when you think of just like, yeah, you know, also I would say like, and I'll let you ask more questions directly uh, instead of just like going on on this. But I would say I, I've been thinking a lot about this one tweet uh, that talked about how a lot of the reasons, even though Americans love cars at face value, a lot of the reasons Americans hold anti-city animus and, you know, prefer to live in suburbs is because of reasons that associated with cars, you know, mm. i.e. cities are dangerous because the main re the main way you're going to be put in danger in a city is through getting hit by a car. Mm. Cities are loud and people complain about cities being loud. They're loud because of cars, including in cities like New York, where more people take public transportation, but still yeah. like New York is people talk about how loud New York is. And it's like, yeah, because even in Manhattan, there's just too many cars. There's way too much honking. There's too much driving. Um, you know, cities are dirty. People complain about cities being dirty. And it's like, yeah, they're dirty predominantly because of cars. They're not mostly dirty because people leave trash on the side of the road instead of putting it in a trash can. It's because of pollution from cars. And it's like, I think there's so much, uh, you know, just overall, I think there's a lot of potential to show people that there's a better way. And, you know, I know a lot of people from California who visit New York and fall in love with it and stuff. Mm. Um, and and want to live in a lifestyle like that. It's just really hard for most people to even envision this stuff in a country where bus stops are like literally sometimes on the side of highways with just like one slab of cement to step off. Right. And it's it's obscene, and it's like it's such an insanely deep cultural shift we need to have um, just for climate reasons alone. Right. Uh, it's just super hard to, you know, get people to see it like that. Yeah, literally, I mean, people should realize that if you kind of like skydive on London, right? Anywhere you land, there will be an underground uh, tube, mm -hmm. any like at least in three, four miles of radius, right? So, oh, yeah. and there will be means of transport to get there, right? So that would be there. And I, I see, sometimes I see the public transport tab of London from one end of the city, to the other, it will be like 45 minutes and on road, it will be like one and a half hour, right? But it's like the reverse in America. If I like take, take a look at Absolutely. something in LA, right? For example, I was just looking at some university to downtown LA and it was like two and a half hours in public transport. It was like obscene. Where, whereas in cars, it was like 40 minutes. But uh, was it the same always in America? Was there any sense of public transport back in the day in terms of like trams or so on? How was it back then? How is it now? You have obviously described how is it now? And like what happened in between, right? So how was mm -hmm. that transport killed and how fossil fuel companies to sell more oil wanted to produce one of the car companies to produce more cars so that it's like this partnership between car companies and fossil fuel industry for more calls for more cars and more petrol consumption can you please tell us about all that cycle what what happened absolutely and you know even though i described kind of the cultural background behind why americans in the modern day have been kind of sold on cars as individual freedom mm. i would be you know kind of remiss to not also talk about the fact that this is kind of like a constructed ideology because like a hundred years ago in most cities they were actually more dense there is this really disturbing mm. picture showing i think it was st louis it showed a picture in black and white from 1910 uh versus now mm. and it showed it kind of like it didn't look like Manhattan by any means, but it was like buildings next to buildings. And they put the photo next to modern day and it's literally like one building aside highway and um, grass and stuff. So absolutely, there were a lot of, you know, uh, tram projects. In Los Angeles, there's in DTLA, like downtown Los Angeles, there's actually a, um, it's called Angel's Flight. It's, you know, really worth looking up to anyone listening. Uh, it's uh -huh. a little artifact of early Los Angeles's public transport system before it was, you know, crushed mm. by General Motors. Mm. And in a lot of, you know, everywhere in the world, to some extent, there's been a pushback against public transportation uh, for, you know, 
means of social segregation. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of, of speaking of the underground, there was a interesting story of when uh, people in the UK in London during World hmm. War II, during when Germany was bombing London um, and they were staying, you know, seeking refuge in the underground. Yep. A lot of conservative politicians were horrified because they were worried that poor people would start to talk to middle class and wealthy people and that they'd form some kind of uh, social solidarity. Right. And in America, it's more extreme than ever. You can literally look at documents where city planners advocate for sprawl as an explicit means for racial segregation like very in the most explicit terms ever when you look at like i was reading about the washington dc metro that's fairly new it's only you know 1968 or so Mm. Uh, but it's actually better than most u.s public transport systems but i was reading how one of the biggest pushbacks was from like the chief planner of dc back then who was like explicitly saying like no this will cause too much racial integration you can't have people taking trains you need to have like an urban center of a working class black population and you need to have a middle and upper middle class white population outside the city center and suburbs. And um, a really good person to look at is Robert Moses, someone who I'm not sure if you're familiar, but he's like, Robert Moses is probably, I'd go as far as to say he's most important urban planner in the entire world of the last 150 years or so. And in the post-war in New York, he wanted to literally just build a highway throughout Manhattan. And he was thwarted, thank God, uh, from doing so. But he was able to influence how the rest of New York looks. So when you're Mm. on Long Island, um, I'm not sure if most people are familiar with Long Island outside of the US. Mm. Uh, Long Island is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this big island which has... Long Island. Yeah. Brooklyn. Parts of New York. Yeah, Yeah, it has Queens. Uh Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, and I was visiting a friend in... Long Island a few months ago. And yeah, when you get outside of Brooklyn and Queens, Long Island looks exactly like most of the US does. It looks like Texas. It's literally just endless sprawl. It's just, and I'm not, you know, whenever you say stuff like that, people are like, think you're being like weirdly patronizing or something. And it's like, I'm not insulting the value of communities that exist there. I'm by no means insulting anyone who chooses to live in these areas. I lived in a pretty similar area growing up, like most Americans do. It's just Mm. that because I'm concerned, like it's because I advocate for the welfare of working and middle-class people, I would like for suburbs and cities to be built in ways where there's a community center outside of a Walmart. And Mm. like, yeah, so I would say, you know, overall, Americans are kind of forced to accept it. And right. uh, from there, the ideology in favor of it kind of came about pretty much. Right. And what, what did the car companies do to kill, kill the public transport? So they bought off all the companies' stocks of everyone who maintains these trams and public transport systems, and they just killed it. They just killed it. Mostly, uh, it's mostly just like campaign finance stuff. I was actually reading some like old, like 1920s um, LA municipal election stuff, mostly because I was interested in seeing how socialist candidates back then were doing. But I was also, you know, it naturally did go into talking about how uh, motor companies were like hugely invested in municipal candidates to push through, um, you know, candidates who would favor not just car culture per se it's more so that i don't know if you know what zoning is in an american sense i'm not sure if that term has any connotation outside of it zoning is we have um multi-family zoning meaning that you're allowed to build like an apartment house where you can have multi-family housing in most of america it's literally illegal to do so like wow. including in california most places it is illegal like quite literally to build anything but single family housing Um, and we're finally shifting away from that in california but like so yeah in most cases they usually just favor candidates who wanted to have single family zoning as kind of like a method to work around it and from there you know um you build after that and also the other thing i'd say is in a lot of cities um American cities have like, it's a really unique thing to just the US because of our decentralized system. We have completely different laws governing um, how cities even function. So in LA, we have a, it's called a um, strong council, weak mayor system. We have 15 city council members and a mayor who can't really do anything. The city council does most things. In New York, they have a much stronger mayor system. Uh, But in a lot of cities, especially small ones, they have a, called a 
council manager system and they have basically like an unelected bureaucrat in most of these places called like the city manager it's not even it's not a politician i mean they might run for something eventually but in this they're just like a bureaucrat who like has this extremely wide power to um push for you know right zoning and yeah and it's kind of like an unelected position but i'd also say like yeah so it's that and then also like kind of cultivating a culture of nimbyism that is basically Mm. um you know in like american city councils i don't know they have like city council meetings and a lot of these things where you know in small cities or whatever there will be a push for something moderate it'll be like yeah we'll build an apartment building and then you get all these like you know it's mainly like old like upper middle class white people they go down there and they're saying like no, we can't have that built there because it'll dilute the value of our property. Right. To build that over there. And it's subterrus. It's just kind of a polite way of saying it. Right. You're and talking about it like that in, you know, obviously the uh, implication is kind of like preserving like um like a homogenous like racial composition in middle class areas they don't right. want to live near black people they want to interact it's crude to say but most of these types they effectively want to see and interact with black and latino people who work as service industry workers who serve them and in a lot of places like this because we have like de facto racial segregation in america till this day in most white suburbs you are likely going to interact with black and Latino people primarily who are service industry workers who commute to that town every day. That's how most of the country works, including in like liberal suburbs in California. Um, It's just kind of something where most people take it for granted. And for me that, you know, especially in America of having such like an awakening about like the need for racial justice in the last year, especially after George Floyd's murder, um and just general conversations about social inequality i think that talking about urban planning and talking about car culture is important because like i said in the beginning it's really intertwined with just broader questions of discrimination and social segregation and you know to me i think it's meaningful to address like just as an example of like racial inequality um in stark socioeconomic disparities between white and black people in America. I think it's also important to address how American city planners have kind of like forced this to be the case through like segregate, you know, de facto segregation in how people even live and where people live near and why um, people, black communities and Latino communities have what they call food deserts where Mm. you can't find a grocery store within a three mile radius. The only a place you can find food at is at like a what we call convenience stores where you right. just get canned goods and that's you know that ties into the obesity crisis among and you get where i'm going with this so basically yeah. like i think it's really important to talk about car culture in relation to just other kinds of like socioeconomic disparities in america and that absolutely includes race i mean racism and real estate in america is a different podcast topic in itself it, it, we can just go on of and course. on but 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 this idea that you t- tell me that they don't want to mingle with people and public transport enables and forces them to mingle with them right and the car, mm-hmm. car culture doesn't i think this issue must be on steroids in southern states or like red states right because Absolutely. a they have an infinite amount of land so way too much land for single picket houses uh which which is something the marginalized communities cannot afford and uh-huh. they will be the last people to get on a public transport system and you know sit sit alongside uh people who the who they don't want to sit with so what and and of course their pride is connected no wonder their pride is connected with cars right bigger the better mm-hmm. bigger more bigger the car it's more american you know so Mm-hmm. can you talk about how it works in like uh, yeah. the red, red america so to speak yeah i'd like to talk about texas in particular with that because mm. texas is um and again i don't really know what the connotation of texas is usually when i talk about stuff on like um international podcasts i try to just kind of like explain the cultural subtext and stuff for people who aren't in america just because i want it to be valuable in america texas is the largest state in the contiguous u.s it mm. is kind of the joke is that uh, everything is big in Texas. That's what Texans Mm. embrace. Texas is the cultural heart of American conservatism. In reality, Texas is a swing state though. Now it is Mm. 
Uh, Almost. Trump won. Yeah, basically Trump won 51% of the state. Biden won around 48% of the state. And all Mm -hmm. the big cities, four out of 10 of America's largest cities, Austin, Houston, Dallas, and San Antonio are all in Texas. And they're Mm -hmm. all blue states. They're all solidly democratic. They're predominantly um, people of color and also liberal white people. Mm -hmm. And they're really limited in what they can do. Like in Austin in particular, Austin is kind of famous for being as liberal as San Francisco. They're just really limited in what they can do with regard to public transportation because the state government basically there's prevents them from doing so they cut off bus funding they'll institute you know rigid single family zoning laws to prevent them from building apartment buildings and stuff like that so that's also just kind of the nature of how the decentralized u.s system really fucks over poor people and people of color is that you have you know cases of blue cities in austin Mm. blue cities in texas like austin Mm. being like extremely prohibited in what they can actually do right yeah and like in America, you have these obscenely massive cars. I don't really know if cars like this are manufactured in India. I imagine not for, you know, just because of the layouts of how yeah. they're so large. They're literally like, um, like just trying to think of is, truck. Is feet, this is dumb, but is feet used outside of, is feet as a uh, unit of measurement used outside of America? Right. Is feet like, or kind no. of, kind feet, of, okay. Like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's literally like, I'm a six feet tall man, there are literally like, eight foot to nine foot tall pickup trucks that could do not see anyone when they're driving, right? The predominantly most motor deaths in the US are caused by these, they should not be street legal in any way. It is insane that they are. But there is like, yeah, this is something that correlates with like American individualism. It correlates mm. with masculinity for, I mean, for very yes, obvious reasons. Exactly. Um, and then from there, it, you know, correlates with in, in the same way of like, you know, not to get off topic, but I was thinking, I was talking to someone about how climate change denial is so potent in America because all the oil companies basically tied it to like, yeah, you're a sissy, you're a girl. If you don't want to drive like a gas guzzling Hummer or this massive truck or whatever, you know, it's masculine or it's masculine to, eat endless red meat americans Mm -hmm. love beef americans love cows i don't eat beef at all but it's so hard to get people to stop eating it because it's so deeply tied to you know american senses of masculinity and Mm -hmm. then from there that ties into support for capitalism and opposition to social safety nets basically saying like if you're a real man you'll provide for your family sure Mm -hmm. you can't because you're legally not you get paid a wage that can't possibly like afford to live a good life because your boss takes most of what you produce from you. Mm. But, you know, it would, you'd be, you're not a real man if you take government assistance, whether that means welfare or just funding for social services. And yeah. And that's another way where it's like car culture is such a good distillation of all these other, like Mm. how the nastiest sentiment kind of gets so effectively kind of uh, put together by people who want people to reject good things. And one of them is like, yeah, car culture, it's super massive appeal to masculinity uh, and stuff like that. But it's like, yeah, um, you know, I think in that sense, and just going back to like red states, it's like, yeah, it is obscene there. I mean, for most people, they most like advocates have to fight for even basic stuff like like bus services in these right. cities that have over a few hundred thousand people. And it's just yeah. like... Speaking of buses and, and trains, right? So like, how do you commute from a city to city? Like, for example, if I'm living in Bangalore, I have a train to Hyderabad. And I have like a bus to Hyderabad. I I used to live in a little town. I have a bus to that little town from here. But I think the bus services, there is no such thing called a public bus service in America. Obviously, I think it is, I I forgot the name of the bus service. And apparently it is mostly used by black people because it's super cheap. And I was looking up for like two major cities of Texas, right? Dallas and Houston. I thought surely there has to be a train. And surprise, surprise, there is no train. And Obviously, it is a perfect candidate for like something like a high-speed rail, you know, which is huge and it would reduce the transport time for more than half of what it would take in a car. And what is with this lack of rail network or public transport network, even among the cities, right? Like intercity transport is also kind of pretty poor. And usually, I think you would either get around in a car or in a flight if it's too far, which is totally not sustainable. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I would just say like, I, like in the South, in red states, I can't even begin to imagine how bad it is. In most of, in the Northeast, you usually can. It's not as good as Japan or Europe by any means, but you can usually get a train from, like you can definitely get a train from like New York City to Boston. Mm. Uh, Boston also has actually pretty good public transport, but I'm thinking even like, you can get a train from New York to places like Baltimore, which, and Baltimore doesn't have really good public transport in the city, but they still mm. have like links to there. But just thinking of like, in a lot of these places, they do have, it does exist to some extent. It's just that it's like, when Americans regularly, when working class Americans regularly have to work three jobs, work 60 hours a week, Mm. it's obscene to ask, like, for very obvious reasons, it's like, it is cheaper to spend a shit ton of money on a car and then have to pay for petrol and car insurance and all that and maintenance than it would be to spend like four hours as much time trying to see the one time a day when a bus service works or whatever and like california like i said like california is very much built on car culture but we still have better funding for the public transport we do have than like texas Mm -hmm. or the red states every i don't know anyone who has ever i've never gone on a train from la to san francisco i've always taken a plane it's a one hour Mm -hmm. plane flight everyone i don't know anyone who it might exist i'm pretty sure there's some method of like really slow rail from there but it's like yeah you take a you know you take a plane from la to san francisco it's like and there's been huge talks in california especially of like yeah we need a high speed rail from san francisco to la because it's it's absolutely obscene that we don't have it it's like can you imagine like have not having a train from manchester to london or like yeah i don't know like i'm thinking of like tokyo to kyoto you know kyoto yeah kyoto or like hiroshima and like much more south down there you can't and it's like it's absurd that there's no high speed rail unfortunately usually politicians are articulated in really like dumb nationalist way they'll be like they'll be like oh we we're gonna lose to china if we don't have like high speed rail like they do so it's it's usually appealing to kind of like offensive like nationalistic nonsense Mm. but like at least they're pushing you know pushing for it um and like yeah if you want to have high-speed rail i think you would kind of have to have it regionally just because america is huge you kind of need to have like the pacific corridor there should be a you know linkage from seattle to portland to san francisco to los angeles uh, then you know bolster it in the northeast um do stuff in the south it's kind of hard to have like stuff right. in the midwest where it's less populated but like right. america it's the wealthiest country on earth it's kind of there's such little political imagination they, we could have better we love you know people love japanese transit we can have better that if we had the political will for it america could have the best transit on earth by far i mean we could yeah. have like stuff that makes the london underground look terrible easily right. it's just there's no political will for it really yeah exactly that's what that's what i was thinking america the most prosperous, the most wealthiest, most innovative, creative nation on earth, right? But Japan, unlike the rest of the world, got far ahead in, uh, with its uh, high-speed rail, and they did it back in the 60s, right? And yeah. Europe, Europe caught up later, and, and you would think US is as big as a size in, in, in Europe, and not as mm-hmm. dense, obviously, but you would think there should be at least a pocket of uh, high-speed exactly. rail, as you said, at least between the major cities. So I really thought Texas would really have that between these four major cities, like one single rail, high-speed rail line that that can mm-hmm. take between any go between cities in uh, in one hour or two, right? So, mm-hmm. what is the excuse here? Is size the only excuse? Is why is it so expensive? Because I was also reading yeah. that it is less expensive to build high-speed rail or public transport in Europe than it is to build in US. So why why is that so? Yeah. So that's the other thing. Is like. Um... It's trying to gather my thoughts but yeah it's a good point of how like um you know i do see people push back they're like well actually america's way physically bigger than japan and it's like we're not comparing the u.s to japan i'm I'm comparing you know california geographically to japan maybe i'm comparing the u.s geographically to the european union which does not have there's obviously asymmetries in how good public transit is per country but i mean infinitely better you can obviously take a train from berlin uh, to madrid or whatever you know absolutely and it's like yeah a lot of it is like that or but yeah it's mostly because people don't can't comprehend it like it really is something where it doesn't really make sense it's not even just because people like cars it's just that it doesn't make sense to 
how people, how you can have it trained because the places where they live to them, it's like, okay, well, taking a train just means I have to go to a train station and that will take me as long to get from there to where I want to go as a car. But it's like, no, because you need to have trains and then also build the cities to accommodate trains. You need to have denser city building. And for most people, they can't understand that unless they visited New York when they were a kid or, you know, studied abroad in a Berlin or whatever. Right. A lot of it is just complete lack of imagination. Most Americans don't use public transit. There is the, you know, subtext that public transit is not for white people. I mean, it's kind of just that simple. When you're in Orange County, California, where I'm from, I'm from Newport Beach, which is like uber, I don't come from a super rich background myself, but it is a super ultra affluent white, lily white Republican city. And the OC bus service, Orange County bus service, it's very obvious that the subtext is that this is for immigrant workers, usually Mm. Mexican or Central American who do work as, you know, either service workers at like the local like Subway sandwich restaurant or clean the people's houses. I mean, that's kind of the subtext. And usually like, when you talk to someone who opposes public transportation enough, it'll slip and they'll say something kind of like that. They'll say like, yeah, we don't want those people here. They Mm. usually hide it through, you know, polite language. Um, But yeah, eventually kind of the mask slips and they'll say something to that effect that it will dilute the quality of our community. It'll hurt property values, stuff like that. Right. And it's like, yeah. So for most people going on a bus is like, Because, you know, there are some people who can kind of like appreciate trains in the abstract, even if they've never taken a train as like a thing to travel on in any meaningful sense outside of like a vacation they took to New York where they took Mm. the subway. But buses are considered dirty. I mean, that is the connotation. It's dirty. And the, the racial implication there is like pretty obvious with regard to that. But it's like, yeah, people don't take buses. There's a massive amount of poor people who actually could afford bus services and stuff in areas where it exists, but they're kind of told that they're that like, Oh, if you take a bus, then you're really mm. poor. You can at least, you know, pretend to be middle-class if you have a car and there's such deep extreme shame along, uh, you know, surrounding being poor in America where social, the myth of social mobility and that we're, you know, a classless society, we don't have mm. landed gentry like Europe did. So that means everyone who wants to be an entrepreneur can become that, you know, when sentiment like that is really strong, the idea of looking poor is such a stigma to avoid. And people right. will just not take buses, even in the areas where they can pretty much. Mm. And, and because of the sense of shame, right? Because, because of this lack of public transport, like, it can really decide the prosperity of a place, right? Mobility is very mm-hmm. important within the city, right? And they would, they, uh, the people who live uh, without, uh, with the public transport, they would save a lot of money on car and petrol. That would actually improve their lives. So yeah. at the, the the net, the eventual net outcome of that is a positive outcome. And it's just that it it really needs a good sales team to sell that thing. And and obviously, a lot of uh, shame has to be washed away from the public transport. It's not shameful to like, I have seen like big celebrities and CEOs take public transport in London in the tube. I have literally oh, yeah, seen yeah. cricketers, they take because it's convenient. In right? New York. Yeah, yeah, of course. Right. So, so uh, this, this anti-city uh, sentiment, right. So, uh, because like, People who don't belong in our class live there, so they don't have to mix with us. So all this coming together is what is keeping America, this car-addicted society, is what you're trying to get to. Absolutely, yeah. I think that I, I think that's a good way of putting it, pretty much in like a you know as simply as possible. That so mm-hmm. much of America's lack of public transport infrastructure is just so intimately related to like every uh, really ugly social phenomena. And that absolutely, if predominantly includes racism. Um, right. And yeah, that I agree with that. Right. Right. What, what can it learn? Uh, there is a lot to learn for America from like European and Japanese public transport. Right. So what, what, what are the things that are absolutely possible, but it, that, but are not happening because of the simplest of willpower among the politicians, mm-hmm. right? So what, what, what are the most simplest things that America can get and see, but it's not seeing right now? Yeah, I think that, 
you know, I mean, for one, just, you know, just circling back to just the basics of it is that in America, I believe there is literally only one city of any size that has a majority of people that use public transport daily. And that's New York City. And even mm. then, I think it's like 60 percent. There's still people in like the outer boroughs who drive, right. a lot, obviously. Right. Um, then after that, it's like Chicago. I think it's like above 30 percent. Same with D.C., San Francisco. Mm. Uh, mm. But then LA, it's like LA is like 10% max. I'm pretty sure I could be getting the figures wrong, but like, right. even if I'm slightly wrong with the numbers, I mean, the sentiment is like basically the same. And right. just understanding that you can easily have many, many cities, mm. even smaller, medium sized cities that don't need skyscrapers. They just need three story buildings and they mm. need it so that there's not five lanes of traffic um, right. in between them and stuff. Uh, the one other thing I'd. Um, circle back yeah not to go back to one of the previous topics because i think there's also another methods of like how we can learn from japan or you know china or europe on this i think another really interesting thing um about how people talk about urbanism uh versus suburban lifestyle that's really mm. interesting and i should have touched upon it is there's an illusion of nature there's an illusion of mm. nature that has to do with suburbs that is completely deranged they talk about suburbs as in America, they have, we have homeowners associations that you're kind of for, if you buy a house in suburbs, you're kind of forced to be in a homeowners association where you mm. pay your dues. And they literally like govern, they punish members who try and paint their house a shade of beige. That's wow. not, I'm not, I'm not even joking. They're really strict on this stuff. But the one thing about it is that like, we have really strict laws with regard to, or, ordinances really because they're enforced by these which aren't even government about lawns people really like lawns americans yes people, i don't know if people have lawns in america people or excuse me i don't know if people have like lawns like this type of artificial like grass monoculture outside we don't have that much land but go on it's literally just like people sincerely think that this weird it's the biggest waste of water ever it's not nature it's actually destroying nature it takes all the water for this like ugly just monotonous green mm. like imported that destroys all the native agriculture americans think that suburbs are nature they really think that when you have these lawns that as your pastime after you get home from your middle class job as an insurance salesman that you go and mow the lawn and that your wife will and your wife and kids will think you're the man of the house for mowing the lawn and that it's nature, but oh, New York City, that's anti-nature. But it's like, no, if you want to conserve nature, you have some areas where you build a lot of stuff for people and then you leave the rest to be natural. If you build everything horizontally, then there's no nature. You Seeing green does not mean it's nature. It's not these, in Air, Phoenix, Arizona, that isn't, there is no natural green monoculture that needs to have like an entire aqueduct for like one neighborhood to be able to mm. like, and there's also, I don't know, um, do people play golf in India? Yeah, I mean, people, yeah. People like golf. Yeah. yeah. Golf is like the worst. I don't I don't care if people enjoy golf or what. I don't care about it on its value. But golf is like in California, there's literally cities where like a majority in small cities. There's like cities where, and we're in a natural desert where we have constant droughts. There's all these cities where like a majority of one city's water use is for one golf course. Wow. It's just like, and, and you can't tell people that this is ridiculous because even if they don't play golf, they drive past it and they see just a they see a really large lawn basically with a few imported trees, usually palm trees, because they want to give it the California aesthetic. Mm. They really think that's nature. They think that they're pioneers crossing the Mississippi River to build a, a new land in in, in like uncharted area it's really just this weird settler colonial fantasy that this is nature it's not there's no grass like this weird grass it's not in arizona that's ridiculous but yeah that's the other thing about it is learn i would say that americans need to desperately learn that this is not nature at all what's actually nature is like in london where um they have the green belts you know after mm. in post-war britain they had a really good planning policy where they kind of naturally limited how suburbs could develop because places like london and birmingham they had mandated green belts where they would just have right. very very little development so they don't have like this endless suburban sprawl that's mm. actually where nature is this is not lawns are not only not nature they're actually like horrifically destructive to the environment but yeah i think that's the other thing is like it's basically 
these people really think when they're driving 30 minutes from their like their suburban sprawl house built in 1970 to a Walmart, they really think it's nature because they see a few trees and then like lawn. And it's like, that's not nature. If you want nature, you have places like New York City and you surround it with the actual environment. Leaving the Arizona as it is, is also nature. That is what nature is. The idea of nature is so white European centric that everything should be green. Green is the Uh, beautiful nature and Desert is like the harsh nature, and that's exactly the, yeah. Know. I think that's a good way of putting it. So, yeah, that's why I kind of talk about like really deep, you know, people kind of sometimes talk about colonialism in like almost abstract senses, and I think there's some merit to that in academic circumstances. But this is one where I think it's actually really meaningful because it really is like a colonial fantasy, and I, yeah, I don't yeah. mean that it's like a white person saying this in like a white guilt way or whatever, but I, I actually do think like that is the most distilled version of like contemporary attitudes in American society that is absolutely rooted in colonialism is like, yeah, like thinking that like saguaros and like the cactuses and desert aren't nature. That's a wasteland. What's actually nature is when you build a one story house that you put like a lawn in front of and then import a palm tree and then take up like 70% of that city's water supply every year, just like, you know, maintaining it. And it's absurd. And, and, and also you don't have the concept of terrace itself, right? Because in India, terrace is like big. You need a terrace where you can sit, relax, fly kites. For you, the lawn is the terrace. But what you don't realize is the amount of land and the amount of water that you put to make that lawn beautiful, right? I see that. I see that is what that is exactly how I feel when I see a golf course in Dubai. I'm like, how are you maintaining oh, this? Yeah. Like, like, uh maintaining uh, european like cities in in the middle of a desert is just so polluting and like so exactly carbon expensive if that if that's the way to put it you know mm-hmm. and i'd say like yeah I, I completely agree with that and 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 and, and also like uh, we were talking about this example of another uh, how public funded uh, endeavors are uh, deliberately made to fail in order to make them look even more bad, right? And you were talking yeah. about uh, the example of a St. Louis city. I totally forgot the name. Uh-huh, the yeah, it's, uh, it was called the Pruitt Igo Housing right. Projects. Um, right. Do you use the term housing projects in India to call public housing? Like, what is it called there? It It is just public housing, I guess, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, and in, in, like, England, they use, like, social housing and stuff. Right, um, right. Yeah, just thinking of, like, terms and stuff. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, it was basically, like just really just for viewers. So in St. Louis in the 20th century, they kind of built the first famous example of public housing. It was actually kind of really celebrated at first. They actually got this Japanese architect who later won like an international award. I forgot. Yeah, what it was I think he designed the World Trade Center, wasn't it? Uh-huh. Yeah, I think so. So it yeah. was, yeah, at first there was some excitement around it. Um, and it was really interesting. I talked about it with you, but there's actually more stuff I was thinking about it um, after our conversation, how it also just ties into just layout in general. Right. So St. Louis, for people who don't aren't really familiar, I don't know how well-known St. Louis is outside of the U.S. It was mm-hmm. always in the 20th century. Um, they used to have this like in the 20th, like mid 20th century, back when America was expanding, there was this obsession for there to be a Western New York, Western at the mm. time, meaning central now, they didn't have a Pacific right, right. coast. So that's why, um, not to go off topic, but just as a funny novelty, if you ever look at a why there's a bunch of cities called like Paris, Iowa, or mm. London, mm. London, Ohio, or right. Madrid, it's or Athens, or whatever, it's all because it was these like, industrial titans who lived in new york who are saying Mm. like oh this is going to be the western new york Mm. and then by the end it became st louis and chicago looked like they were one of them was going to be the western new york chicago won out um and so st louis declined by the 20th century st louis was already kind of de-industrializing quicker than the rest it was already Mm. not to insult anyone who lives in st louis but in the context of like Mm. you know historiography kind of St. Louis was seen as a place in decline and so it attracted a lot of uh, working class black residents from the south during the what we call the great migration period of right. black people in the 20th century moving out of the south up north in search mm-hmm. of uh, civil liberties and also just way better economic conditions right and all of a sudden they had you know we call it tenement housing it's kind of a polite term for slums so we had mm. these slums in St. Louis 
And there was an urban renewal effort to build public housing that would be better than these slums that kept lighting on fire. There were actually a bunch of like, horrifically, there were literally white tenement housing owners who would burn them down and kill the people inside to get oh insurance settlement. It's yeah, it's barbaric stuff. And I think right. that that's why like, you know, urban history is so deeply important to understanding some of those ugly, you know, incidents in American history. Mm-hmm. Anyway, basically they're like, we should build public housing. It was one of the first efforts. It even got the support of some businesses, interestingly, because they wanted to right. make downtown St. Louis um, mm. palatable um, and stuff, uh, you know, to right. commercial interests. So they built Pruitt Igo housing. Um, at first, it was considered, it was celebrated. Like you said, it was built by, I believe, like the architect who built the World Trade Center, it got a bunch right. of awards. It wasn't really public housing though, because it was its construction was funded. It was not maintained through public funding though. It was maintained through the tenants of this, right. and they were public. They were black public housing tenants in twentieth right. century American South. It is among right. the poorest people in the country at the time, right. obviously, and so for that reason, it quickly fell into disrepair. Mm. Um, And there was also just the fact that a lot of, and what I didn't touch upon in our conversation was even besides just the obvious factors of black working class people being subject to like horrific discrimination in job searches as in every other facet of life. Hmm. It was also because it was in the downtown, but despite that, it was so far away from the jobs because it was already, St. Louis was already turning into a sprawl city. So the people literally couldn't even get to jobs that would hire them. Even if like, factories and other industrial settlements that were more open to having like a multiracial workforce they couldn't go there because there was no public transit there were no real consistent trams and they couldn't afford cars obviously if you're a public housing resident right um so basically like yeah pruitt igo was set to fail i don't know if there's a there's a really see yeah it was set to fail and it went into disrepair naturally it became a site of extreme poverty and that led to organized crime organizing in the building and that right you know led to conservatives saying like oh yeah this is why public housing can't work yeah um stuff like that oh and you know not to get too on to that but there's also like and again i'm I'm saying this and i put this uh as a preface because i don't know if like certain like really bigoted american sentiments have any you know if they have like any meaning to someone outside of america so i'm adding the preface of this in right. america one of like um there's a really deep racist sentiment talking about uh, where, you know, it's this like really deep like manifestation of like racial animus where they say black people don't know their own parents. And that's what right. people will say. And that's when conservatives are like, Oh, the problem is in black communities. The reason they're poor isn't because of like systemic discrimination. It's mm. because there's no strong cultures of fatherhood. And someone made a really good point. I forget which scholar was that places like Pruitt, I which were, public housing predominantly for black working class people right they literally banned the fathers from being in there if they were able-bodied so they were literally wow. like so american society kind of like at least among like very large not all but among large sections of like the black urban working class in the 20th century they kind of right. instituted policies that like literally forced the fathers from out of the house and that mm. is why they have to this day you have racist people saying this about how black people don't know their own parents and it's like not that it's true to begin with but the reason that this like hateful stereotype came about was because of stuff put in place in public housing to basically make the environments as punitive as possible so that Mm. no one would want to live there because and also they do literally inspections it was strictly enforced they'd inspect it they'd ask the moms if they had any man staying over within a seven-day period and they would kick them out if so they would literally go into closets to see if anyone was hiding this was rigidly enforced and yeah it's kind of like a negative feedback loop you do stuff like this you negatively impact generations of people then you create like crude like bigoted stereotypes around it to condemn them even yeah you get where i'm going with this and like, yeah, yeah, it yeah. circles back into like why urban history is so deeply important to understanding everything else about american life right 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 man i think I've gotten, I've got to learn more about uh, how the, why the cities are the way they are in, uh, in US. And uh, uh-huh. it, it is not exactly the utopian uh, 
dream american life that it seems to be right it only mm-hmm. it it first of all it is unsustainable and it is only available for few people and yeah. it it is not supposed to be that way i think there should be a sense of equality where everyone exists and everyone has the equal access to like mobility and jobs and to move yeah. and i think transport is a massive uh, uh uh factor in 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 deciding which area prospers and which area doesn't right so mm-hmm. cars cars i i it, that that is like a tourist's nightmare to visit america is like you have to hire a car to go anywhere which is like oh yeah yeah which is like so uh, and 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 obviously if a to as a tourist if i can feel it and i can only imagine how people over there who work actually work feel so i just hope yeah i don't know when it will get better bro but Yeah. I hope there are some steps in that direction. I'll just add, if I could add one more comment for this ends. Um, right. It's actually funny. I have a friend from India. I knew her in New York. Um, mm. Then when I went back to California during the start of COVID, uh, she actually ended up back there. She was dating a person she who like she knew from India who goes right. to University of Southern California. Um, and I remember talking to her and she's from Mumbai. And I remember like talking to her and she was really confused why the LA Metro didn't seem to go anywhere. Like it, it was on time. It was actually clean. It just, you can't really go anywhere. It's just all way too spread out and stuff. And like, yeah, I imagine if you're like um, from like a, you know, urban center in India, that's kind of the experience outside of like any city, but New York and America mm. pretty much. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. True. True. Well, that was a fascinating uh, topic. Aiden, thank, thank you. you for your time. I have learned a lot, and I hope listeners felt the same. And on that note, we tell you goodbye, and until we see you next time, bye everyone. Thank you.